On Saturday, November 5th, 2011, in Knoxville, Tennessee, a University of Tennessee freshman, Derek Brodos, spent the afternoon doing what a lot of college students do, or at least some. He spent the afternoon lying on a couch in his uh, fraternity house watching college football. It's important stuff. And, uh, you know, as time went on, he, um, he fell asleep. And around 6.10 p.m., his cell phone rang. And he was sound asleep. He'd been sleeping for about an hour. And he kind of looked at the number, and he didn't recognize it. And so he just shut it off. And he went back to sleep. His cell phone rang again. And this time, he decided, well, I'd, I'll try to answer this. And, but by the time he actually got it answered, the click was off, and there was bad reception in his dormitory at that time anyway. So um, no big deal. And then his cell phone rang a third time, and uh, the voice on the other end said, Are you sober? Yes. And uh, the voice said, the coach is sending a police escort to pick you up and to take you immediately to the stadium. Because apparently the backup kicker uh, had become injured during the pregame warm-ups, and the first-string kicker had been injured on uh, Thursday and Derek Brodus was the third team kicker, and he didn't make the cut to dress for this game. Um, so a police squad delivered Derek to the game, and the Vols trainer helped him prepare quickly and to get stretched out and to find his pads and to find a uniform uh, at the last minute because the game was at 7 p.m., and he was the kicker. And um, Derek kicked a 21-yard field goal just before the end of the first half. He kicked three extra points, and that's he made every try. And he did pretty well, adequate, on his kickoffs. And his team won. The Tennessee Vols beat uh, Mid-State, Tennessee, Tennessee, uh, Middle Tennessee State, uh, 24 to nothing. And Coach Dooley gave him the game ball. Coach called him into action. God has called you, if you're a follower of Christ, God has called you into action. He's called you to follow. He is leading, He is the leader, and He has called you and I into action. And this is what we see in Luke chapter 10. Um, so uh, let's look at Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in uh, verse 1. And let me just read that first portion of uh, Luke chapter uh, 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him in every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you. Like lambs among wolves, do not take a purse, a bag, or a sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. And when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. And when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into the street and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet, be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So let's uh, get started. And in verses 1 through 16, uh, we see this ministry team expansion. Jesus had had 12 disciples. Now he's adding 72 more which now he has 84. And uh, this, his ministry team is expanding. It's ministry multiplication. Now, I know that ministry is one of those religious terms. And, you know, I, I don't like to use religious terms. But I'm going to. And um, ministry just means to serve. That's what it means. This... It's a serving team. A minister is a servant. Jesus' ministry team were servants for him. They serve to do what he asked them to do. And so he's expanding his ministry team. And we see the purpose in verse 1. Um, it begins in verse 1, after this. And of course, you always want to say, after what? Because I wasn't here last week. Or I don't remember from what happened right before this. Well, after this, well, it's after the disciples had argued about who's the greatest. Remember that? They, they got so overwhelmed with uh, the authority that was given to them and the success they had in ministry, they began to say, and remember there was, a Mount, there was a transfiguration where Peter, James, and John got this extra special time with Jesus. And, you know, this is kind of a heady thing. And so they, who's the greatest? Um, and then the disciples, you know, they were kind of overconfident about maybe what their role was. And remember when they went into a town in Samaria, um, the disciples went to Jesus and asked if maybe they should call down fire from heaven and burn them to death because they, didn't, they weren't interested in the message about the kingdom. Remember that? And that, that wasn't really what Jesus was trying to accomplish there. He didn't really delegate judgment to them. Um, and then, um, you remember Jesus had an encounter with three different men. Uh, a couple of them said, I'll follow, but i got to do this. And Jesus invited another, and he said, okay, but i got to do this. And he, uh, there, there were three who wanted to kind of be with Jesus, but they had other priorities too. And it's after this that we see this. The Lord appointed 72 others. 72 others, so it's 72 plus the twelve. And sent them two by two. 36 pairs will go out. 
They are smaller teams, teams of two, two by two. And they go ahead of Jesus to every town and place where he was about to go because that's going to be their role. They're going to be forerunners, sort of like mini John the Baptist, where they go out and they announce, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And they're given authority and they're delegated power. And um, he gives uh, these instructions. So think, of, think in terms of this is, Jesus has got a plan. He's got a strategy. He's going to go to all these towns. Now he's got people to go to those towns for him ahead of time so that people can hear the kingdom of God is advancing. The kingdom of God is near because the king is near. Jesus is present. And they get a chance to sort of pay attention, to ask questions, to become curious, to get their hearts ready because Jesus is going to visit them. And he gives the instructions uh, beginning in verse 2. He told them the harvest is plentiful. So he's using this agricultural term. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is not the only time he used this, these concepts. But he talks about here is the harvest. And he's referring to people who are to become a part of the kingdom of God. People who will respond in a par- positive way to the message of Jesus as their Messiah, as their king, as their leader, who will become their savior. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so since there, there are not enough workers to accomplish all that needs to be done, Jesus tells them to pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. It's his work. It's his field. And he can raise up workers. And he raised up 72. We don't know who these 72 are. We don't know their names. Um, I think there are uh, possibly tradition that identifies some, but we don't know from Scripture who these are. We don't know how they got attached to Jesus. There was just an example in Luke chapter 9 of how three wanted to attach with Jesus but didn't. But 72 others did at some point. And so he says, "Ask, pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out more. So I've called you 72, I'm going to send you out, but I want you to pray, okay? You're to go out, I want you to pray, I want you to pray for more people, to God to raise up more workers who are going to help. And then he says, ask the Lord of the harvest, go. You ask, now you go. You're going to do both, you're going to pray and you're going to go. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. How exciting and challenging is that? Like a lamb among wolves. There's that agricultural picture again. Jesus is saying, you're going to be vulnerable. This is a high-risk operation I'm sending you on. It's going to be dangerous, and you're going to be like lambs. The idea is not dumb, but innocent. That's the idea. 
And then he goes on and he continues. And if you remember back in Luke 9, Jesus sent out the 12 and he gave similar instructions to them. They had this same kind of opportunity that these 72 will get. But Jesus is expanding the team. He says, do not take a purse or a bag or sandals. Don't take money. What? Don't take money. You don't need to buy your provisions. You don't need to pay for a room at the hotel. Don't take a money bag, a purse. Don't take an overnight bag. Don't take any extra shoes. I don't want you to depend on your own resources. And then he says this one that may seem a little strange. He says, do not greet anyone on the road. I don't want you to greet anyone on the road. Well, he's not saying, I want you to be unfriendly. I want you to ignore people. He wasn't saying that. What he was saying is, don't stop and have a good old first century uh, greeting and stop on the road and talk about, is my 32nd cousin related to you in any way? And, you know, go through your whole family history as you meet someone new. Uh, because sometimes um, introductions were quite lengthy, and that was sort of like appropriate. Uh, when you enter a house, first say, so first priority here, the idea is, okay, you're going to need to stay in people's homes. You're going to have to rely on people to care for you, to provide a place for you to sleep. Um, when you enter a house, say peace to this house. This is the same instruction he gave the 12. Say peace. Say shalom. May God's favor rest on this home. Um, so um, it, the messenger has this opportunity to bring this message to this home and to this community and to bring God's divine favor into this community and into this home. And here's the opportunity for the people of this home to receive this message. Verse 6, if someone promotes peace, if somebody's for this, if someone receives this message, if someone promotes peace, uh, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. The idea, if they ignore you, if they're not interested, then, hey, don't stay. Don't waste any more time. Offer them this peace, this shalom. And Jewish people understood this idea of shalom, God's favor, way better than we do just to say peace be on you. It was a common greeting, but the, this, here's the idea, and it's coming from the Messiah himself. And this is a message that he brings. It's, it's, it's the message that God offers to these communities. Uh, verse 7, he says, Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. So they're going to have to depend on these people. They're not going to go and pay their own way. They're going to go, they're going to serve Jesus, they're going to do what he said, they're going to offer the kingdom of God and say, announce to this community that the kingdom is near because the king is near and the king is coming to this town. And I want you to stay there, I want you to stay in the home that you first arrive in, and whatever they put before you, that's what you are to eat and drink. Now some of us wouldn't do very well with that. 
whoa, I draw the line here. I'm not going to eat that. And some of these homes may have been highly Gentile influenced too. And so there might be things that wasn't on their diet list. And Jesus said, I don't want you to be asking questions and I don't want you to be in. I want you to appreciate what is provided for you with a thankful heart. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you. And then he says, and this is exactly what he told the 12, do not move around from house to house. Don't see which place is going to be the most comfortable or have the best food. You just stay and be content with how God has provided for you. And then he says in verse 8, when you enter it, you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. And again, this uh, may be sort of uh, helping them prepare their mindset in case they walk into a Gentile influence, a non-Jewish influence who don't care about the Jewish dietary laws. And by the way, Jesus proclaimed all foods clean. Verse 9, and then he gives this the same kind of instructions he gave the 12. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, because this, you know, remember when, they, when Jesus did miracles, when the disciples did miracles, miracles authenticated the message and the messenger. It was like, hey, attention, attention, God is doing something here. Here's a miracle. Listen to what this man says. Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. And so they were to, this is a God thing. These miracles aren't us. This is a God thing. God is at work here. God's kingdom is coming here. Verse 10, but when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into the streets and say, so this is where you go in and say, hey, you know, we've had enough. We don't want to hear what you have to say. You're just uh, some religious fanatic. And uh, we, we're not interested. So when you enter a town and you're not welcome, go into the street and say, even the dust of your town, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. And that was a symbol, remember, in the ancient culture of sort of like knocking the dust off your sandals. It was a symbol of, okay, I'm not responsible for you. I've come, I've done what God wants me to do, and I am no longer responsible for what happens to you. And so they can walk away, and they are not responsible. So kick off the dust from your sandals, yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has, he, has come near to you. This is what this is all about. They are to announce Jesus is coming. The kingdom of God is present. They are to be ready, and they need to know that. Whatever they choose, it's their choice. It's just the same way with the gospel. It's a choice we make, yay or nay. And then Jesus surprisingly says in verse 12, I tell you it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom. Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and a very ungodly community that God brought judgment on and brought fire and brimstone down from heaven. He says it will be more tolerable, tolerable. It's not in my notes, so I. Um, God, these people are going to 
not compare in the guilt. They're going to be guilty. Sodom's going to be guilty. But not like the people who had the opportunity to have Jesus Christ come into their community, come into their homes, and offer the possibility for them to be a part of the kingdom of God, to be a part of what God is doing, this new work. And so uh, let's, we have a map, I hope. So just a little reminder, Capernaum has been the headquarters for Jesus. It's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Remember that? Jerusalem is where the temple is. We always kind of need to be reminded of that. Someday Jerusalem is going to be kind of the center of the universe. Read your whole Bible. And uh, you see at the bottom there's the Dead Sea. And then off to the right is this town that no longer exists called Sodom. That's kind of maybe where it was, roughly, in that area. And those people who uh, dishonored God in a huge way are going to be more comfortable at the judgment. And I don't know if anybody's going to be comfortable. But in comparison to those people who had the opportunity to meet Jesus in person, this is a very unique situation. Now, we pick this idea up a little bit more in verses 13 through 15, judgment to come. Verse uh, 13, and Jesus goes off now. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! We've heard of Bethsaida because Jesus was just there. Two cities. Let's see the map, a new map. Two cities on the north. See, uh, we go up to the top. We see Capernaum. Off to the right is Bethsaida. And then up north of there is Chorazin. And Jesus is saying, Woe to these two communities, Chorazin and Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in... Now he's going to mention two other towns, Tyre and Sidon. And we see them at the top. They're on the coast at the top of that map, Tyre and Sidon. They are cities outside of Israel. They are Gentile communities that have been judged by God, and they have fallen in history by uh, other armies. And um, they, they had been judged because they were evil, Jesus saying, if I had come to their town, they would have repented. I've been in your town, Chorazin and Bethsaida, and yeah, you, a few people became followers, but as a community, as a town, this is the chosen, chosen land. This is God's nation. They reject God's son. If it had been Tyre and Sidon and Jesus had come, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, demonstrating extreme humility. Verse 14, But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And then verse 15, And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? Now he's going to Capernaum. Capernaum has been his headquarters. Think about this. Jesus probably hung out there more than any city after he left his hometown. This is where he called his first disciples. He did miracles there. He taught publicly there. He kept his ministry focused in that area for a long time, and then he would come back, and he would come back, and people got to see him sometimes every day, sometimes probably weekly or monthly. 
And yet, as a community, they reject. They don't take him seriously. Take him for granted. He's just another one of those itinerant preachers who wants to hear himself talk. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Will you be saved? No, you'll be condemned. Verse 16 speaks of Jesus' delegated authority to the 72. Look at verse 16. Whoever listens to you listens to me. This is pretty amazing. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects him, but whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me, meaning my father. So he's saying, you to the 72, you represent me. And when you speak, I speak. And what you do represents me. They are to be his ambassadors. They are to speak for Jesus, to speak on his behalf. And their lives probably need to back up their message as well so it doesn't confuse people. And Jesus said if the message is rejected, they're actually just rejecting Jesus. You know, the same is true today. We are ambassadors for Christ. We represent him. We are to speak for him. And our lives need to be consistent in a way that shows people what Jesus is like. And what, what does a Christ follower look like? And that when people reject the message, they're not rejecting us. It doesn't make any difference whether they don't like us or not. It's about will they reject him? And I hope that people don't ignore Jesus because they can't find him in us. In verses 17 through 24, our last major section, uh, we see the ministry team debrief. This was Jesus' training method. Uh, he would give assignments like sending out the 72, and then they would come back, and uh, they would talk about their experiences, and Jesus had a chance to give feedback and give, give some instruction. And so we, re- we see the return in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy. Isn't that amazing? They went out like lambs among wolves and they didn't take anything with them they were totally vulnerable and they had to depend totally on what God provided for them and nothing else they did what Jesus said and they came back with joy and said Lord even the demons submit to us in your name now we don't know if Jesus instructed them to cast out demons I wouldn't be surprised if he did we don't always have every detail of everything that happened. In fact, it's that we just have capsules sometimes of everything that happened. It doesn't really make any difference because this is what happened. Demons, and they had watched other disciples cast out demons. They had watched Jesus cast out demons, and they too were able to cast out demons and set people free in the name of Jesus Christ. So Jesus has another teaching moment here in verses 18 through 20, and so he wants to offer some insight and instruction right here. 
Verse 18, he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He didn't rebuke them and say, you silly guys, you've missed the point. He switches gears and he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Did Jesus at that moment actually see Satan fall from heaven? Maybe. I don't know if he did or not. Is he alluding to Isaiah 14? I think that's pretty likely because Isaiah the prophet looked into the future and saw Satan fall from heaven. And Jesus is now identifying that. And God's people in the Old Testament have been waiting for Messiah to come because Messiah would defeat Satan. And certainly Jesus defeated Satan at the cross and he will give Satan the final defeat in the book of Revelation. I think what Jesus is suggesting here also is not only is Satan judged and defeated, but he's suggesting here, guys, when you were casting out demons, the enemy's kingdom was following. You were having impact. You were advancing the kingdom of God one life at a time. You were making a difference. That was good. That the demons submitted to you in the name of Christ, that's a good thing. And he says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. And I don't think that is literal. Some people want to take and be snake handlers. But I think what he's metaphorically speaking of demons, just like Satan was the serpent, I think he's talking about, I've given you authority to trample, to be able to overcome the demonic forces, and to overcome the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. And that's what he told those 72. And by the way, I would never tell any Christ follower that nothing will harm you. Jesus could tell them because he had a promise to those 72. I would never tell a missionary nothing can harm you. John the Baptist got his head cut off. He's about as good as Christ follower as there was. The Apostle Paul got his head cut off. The Apostle Peter was nailed upside down on a cross. Yes, bad things happen to good people. Um, However, do not be discouraged. Verse 20, do not rejoice that spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I just go back and say, I've said this before at different times, the safest place is not always in the will of God, i.e. John the Baptist. I think he was exactly where God wanted him to be. It was the right place. It was a place that honored God and glorified God. But it wasn't always safe. But here's the message, verse 20. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Be careful. Don't rejoice because you have this ability now. You have this power now. That's not what this is all about. Be careful you don't get focused there. 
and think this is about you and your greatness. Be careful. What you need to remember is who God is and what he's done for you. Remember that your names are recorded in heaven. Remember that God has forgiven you your sin. And God has made you a child of God and you are a part of his family and you are a citizen of heaven. Remember all that God has done. He's given you eternal life. It's sort of like, be grateful. You know, we sang... uh, Our worship this morning focused a lot on the death of Jesus. It's what God has done for us. And that should raise up in us a response. It should elicit a response. What will we do? This is what God has done for us. What are we going to do? And Jesus wants us to follow. That's all. Wherever you are, Whatever you have in your day, however you spend your time, he just wants us to follow. He says, do not rejoice, but rejoice. Rejoicing is celebrating. It's worshiping. It's responding back to God with praise for what he's done for us. Why did he pick us? Verses uh, 21 and 22, we see joy. This is a snapshot of joy. At that time, Jesus full of joy through the Holy Spirit. Think about this. Jesus is filled with joy. He's on the way to the cross, by the way. We know that back in uh, Luke 9, he set his course for Jerusalem He already told his followers that he was going to die, that he was going to be killed, that he was going to uh, be raised on the third day. And he is filled with joy. Why? Because 72 of his followers, by faith, went out and did what he asked them to do. That's all. They served him, and they just did what he asked. That's all. Nothing more. Just did what he... And he is filled with joy. And then he responds, I praise you, Father. Jesus is moved to worship. He's, he, he's, it, he's overwhelmed with joy, and he wants to focus back to the Father. That's worship. It's praise for what God has done in the lives of these men. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You know, Jesus could have said, well, Dad, I did it. You want me to train these guys? I did. Done. What do you think? Pretty good, huh? No, Jesus is moved with joy, and he gives praise back to the Father. And then he says, Because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned. The wise people of the world. The educated people of the world. And he's going to include the well-known Sanhedrin, the the leaders of religious leaders of Israel, the scribes and the elders and the teachers of the law, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these religious professionals. 
the educated, the educated of the Gentile world, the smart people. God did not reveal himself to them. He revealed himself to the little children. And those are his disciples. That's what he's calling his disciples right here. Because um, spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And uh, to understand the kingdom of God and to understand who Jesus is needs to be revealed. And God is the one who reveals. And he wants us to respond in faith back to his revelation. The kingdom of God is at hand was a divine revelation. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. This pleased God to reveal to these disciples instead of the Sanhedrin. He could have picked 70, and that's how large the Sanhedrin were, 70. Those could have all followed the Messiah, and those could have been his disciples, but no. Later, he'll have a couple of those secret disciples out of that group. Verse 22 Jesus goes on, he says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. He's saying you can't figure out God on your own. To know God has to be revealed by God. In this case, it's revealed by the Son, Jesus. The Son knows all there is to know about the Father, exhaustively. The Father knows all, the know, all there is to know about the Son. You can't know God, you can't know Jesus unless it's revealed to you by the Son. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. Jesus died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. He is the way to have a relationship with the Father. Verses 23 and 24, we see favor. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. God has shown his divine favor to these disciples. They have gotten to see Jesus in person. They've gotten to talk with him. They've gotten to watch him teach. They saw him do miracles. They saw him cast out demons. And this is a unique, divine favor on that first century generation and that first century group of disciples. They got to watch Jesus do miracles. And this is a unique time in history, and they are indeed blessed. Verse 24, this is our last verse. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you did and did not see it, to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Abraham, 2,200 years before Christ, looked to this day and he wasn't even considered a prophet. but He's considered the father of faith. Moses looked forward to this day because there would be a prophet like him raised up after him and he would speak for God and God's people were to do for him and Jesus was that prophet. 
David and Solomon were kings, and they both looked forward to this day when there would be a king that would reign on God's throne, and ultimately he would reign on that throne forever. Samuel waited for this day. Isaiah waited for this day. Daniel waited for this day. Malachi waited for this day. And yet, those 72, we don't even know their names, they got to experience this. The 12 got to experience this as well. Okay, here are some lessons. Number one, first lesson, doing ministry in teams is better than Lone Ranger ministry. Doing ministry in teams is better than doing it yourself. Now, there are some jobs you can do yourself, but I hope you're connected with the team in some way. Sometimes preparing something in VBS at your house makes more sense than trying to get in one place, especially since we don't have a building. Um, But doing ministry in teams is better than Lone Ranger Um, Jesus had a team of 12, then he raised up 72 more, and he sent them out in pairs. God designed the church as a team, and today we're gathered as a team. There's a lot of ways that we work as teams. We, we, We have groups, we have a small group ministry we call growth groups, and we want to do life together in teams. We have serving teams, worship team, bridge kids team. Uh, people who serve in hospitality, we, we, we want to operate in teams as much as possible. We believe we're going to be more effective. Now, um, Solomon in Ecclesiastes had this kind of idea. He says, two are better than one. Now, I know that's really true for me when it comes to marriage. Two are way better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. One of the values of pairs is accountability. Somebody can check on you. Somebody can encourage you. Somebody can help you when you fall down. And when you get older, you really do fall down. And you need somebody to help you get up. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help. Next slide. Also, if two lie down together, I like this part in marriage, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And the idea of there's two, and we, in marriage we often like to bring in God and say the cord of three strands is to bring God into this relationship, but three are better. And if you have God on your team, you can't be defeated. Okay, second Second lesson, doing ministry always requires total dependence on God. This may be your best takeaway. Doing ministry always required total dependence on God because we in the American church think we can do it without depending on God. We can just go through the motions. I do not have to have my spiritual life in order to be on the welcome team, right? I don't have to have my spiritual life in order to be on the bridge kids team, right? I don't have to have my spiritual life in order to be on the worship team or the student ministries team. What if every one of us who call ourselves Christ followers were totally dependent on God? How effective would our ministry be when it comes to caring for each other, encouraging each other, loving one another, reaching out, representing Christ in the way we live? sharing the good news and seeing people want to respond back. 
Now, believe me, I know all about how to go through the motions, to look like a Christian, talk like a Christian, and walk like a Christian. You don't know if I'm leaning on the power of the Holy Spirit or not. And I know what it's like to be trained and to do something over and over and over again, and I can just, you can just go through the motions. But that is not effective ministry. It doesn't bring joy to Jesus. Is that why we're not effective in the U.S.? Because we just go through the motions? Because we can do what we have to do to get the job done without depending on God? Without living for Him during the week? John 15, 5, Jesus said this, said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Maybe that's not true. Maybe we can do it another way. Probably not. When we depend on him, all of us, we can do much. We can bear much fruit. Uh, thirdly, Third lesson, ministry success may tempt us to be impressed with the wrong things. This was a temptation for the disciples when they could cast out demons. That was a good thing. They walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. It was a God thing, and the demons submitted to them. And we're just reminded about Luke 10, verse 20, when Jesus said, Do not rejoice. The spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Keep the main thing the main thing. It's about what God has done for you. It's grace. We don't deserve it. Don't let any ministry success that we do think, well, it's because I'm really good. You may be good. You may be skilled. You may be gifted. Awesome. God is the one who works through us. Last one, number four, serving Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit brings deep joy to Jesus. When his disciples returned, when they did exactly what Jesus asked them to do, he was full of joy in the Holy Spirit. They had done what he had asked. We have potential to bring joy to Jesus Christ. We too can bring him great joy. Some of you may not really care. Verse 21, Luke 10, 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus gave praise for us because we did what he asked us to do? So what if your phone rang and it was Jesus? And he said, I want you now. Here it is. Go. Would you do whatever he asked? Whatever he asked. Let's stand to pray. Father, we thank you uh, for Luke's reminder of how Jesus called disciples and sent them out to serve and um, All along, he's wanting his people to teach other disciples to obey everything that he's commanded. Lord, may we grow as followers of Christ. 
May we understand that we've been called. May we be willing to do whatever. May we not be satisfied with picking and choosing what makes us comfortable and what things we like. Give us a heart that wants to do whatever he asks. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.